We're continuing our series on the Gospel of Matthew, Kingdom of Heaven. We've come to one of the most well-known Bible verses in, in really culture. Even many non-Christians are aware of the reference to it. Uh, so let me lay out the plan so you know where we're going today. We're going to read the parable, then we're going to examine it through the cultural lens of the day, and then a biblical one. Actually, in reverse that order. Hopefully pulling an old parable right before us, forcing us to consider the text, not only from an ancient perspective, but from a modern one. And then we hope to literally apply the text to our lives in a way that help us move our lives more to the rock and away from the stand. Please stand for the reading of the word of God this morning. Matthew 7, 24 through 29, if you could help me. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. You may be seated. Pray with me. Father God, I ask that you would help us illuminate the text of scripture this morning. Lord, that you would challenge us at a heart level of the way, how we need to apply this specifically to the text. And Lord, that you would encourage us. For you offer a better story than the world has to offer. In your son's name I pray. Amen. House of sand. Let's look at the house of sand first. Most of you know I grew up in the state of Florida. Uh, beach life is literally my heart music. Okay? I see a seagull and I get excited. One of the most interesting parts of beach life for those of us that have lived it is to watch the tourists, the snowbirds, you, when you come in and try to acclimate for a week at a time. Now, a Floridian knows how to spot a tourist pretty quick. First tell how dark your skin is, okay? Except for redheads, we get it, there's a ginger problem there. Your accent is a second tell. It just is. We can hear it across the beach as you're yelling to put sunscreen on one another. The third is the unknown of how to handle going to the beach. It is, it is quite comical to watch a tourist. Tourist? How do you say it here? Foreigners, okay? Watch a foreigner like poke a live jellyfish on the beach with their bare hand, and we're like, <laughs> silly tourist. Now, I'm not one to revel in the misery of others anymore, but as a tween, 
I couldn't help it from time to time. Imagine with me, if you will, a family of northerners setting up shop at the beach for the morning. I had this fear as I was thinking about this story. It might have been you guys. Because I know many of you, you used to like visit my beach, right? And I'm like doing the math in my head. I'm like, it could have been Mitch, right? It could have been you. I'm, I'm doing the math. I'm like, maybe I was laughing. Let me continue the story. Imagine a family of northerners sitting up shop at the beach. Some of you are probably them. And a child of five or six starts to build a sandcastle. They're very excited. They spend an hour setting up walls. It's a very important feature of a five or six-year-old who's building a sandcastle. And they spend some time on the actual tower or really just the hill of sand behind it, right? I mean, it's just a mound. Maybe a moat if their parents help them. But the same principle that governs real estate also governs sandcastle building. Location, location, location. Now, as a tween, I did not feel the need to help the five- or six-year-old. I probably should have. But when the tide turned that day and the waves started to attack the moat and then the walls and then the castle, that little boy was distraught, screaming at its destruction, tears pouring down his face. He could not believe that all that effort, all that time was for naught, was being taken away from him, and there was nothing he could do about it. And that local tween on the beach laughed. Not out loud, that would be mean, but under his breath. That tween needed Jesus. (laughs) So did the six-year-old boy. Why the absurd story this morning, Pastor? Far too many people, including some of you, more than likely statistically, are tourists in the king's world. Far too many people spend their lives building walls, moats, and towers that they only think are beautiful, only to have it destroyed because of location, location, location. All the while, the devil and his minions say nothing but laugh under their breath as you throw a fit on the shore of this life. This is a human problem. This is a human problem. It's not just a you problem. It's a human one. It's been in place for a long time. Let's talk about old houses real quick. I think it'll help us figure it out, old houses. Let's look at the original audience of Jesus. We're closing the Sermon on the Mount, okay? The original audience here are mostly Jews confronted by the Messiah, confronted by bold proclamations as they sat on a hillside and listened to as what many would be described later as the Sermon on the Mount. What had they built their houses on? That was what the old world had to consider. Was it sand or rock? Now the Jews lived under the expectation that there was a coming Messiah, or at least many of them had that expectation. But they believed the Messiah would be there to overthrow the Romans, would oust their oppressors, would lead militarily and govern as David governed. But instead, the Messiah would die for the Romans, for the oppressors, as well as Israel. 
so that the oppression of sin would be overcome. And because their expectations were not met, those people on the hillside, some who sat on that hillside participated in killing him. For the Gentile nations, they believed that their deities, their gods, were directly tied to the nations that governed them. Therefore, their pantheon was supreme. Their Caesar, right, Rome of the day, was a direct link to the gods. They viewed him as a messenger of the gods. He was supreme. We see that in Acts 17 uh, played out with Paul. But when Jesus was made supreme, when Jesus would not just take another seat in the pantheon of deities, when Jesus made exclusive claims about ways and judgment and houses and rock and sand, they responded by either accepting the free gift of salvation or by killing the messengers. Jesus revealed to both people, Jew and Gentile, that their houses, their very foundations, were built on sand. That when the rains came, and they always come, their houses would fall. Their expectations, their assumptions about reality, their very foundations ultimately were the things that led to their destruction. And we see that in new houses too. Church, the old world is not the only one with assumptions. I've used the picture of a tree to kind of describe what we are looking at when we talk about discipleship ministry here at the church. A, a tree is not aware of the air it is taking in. Uh, just like a fish is not aware of the water it, it is in. Trees just go, grow and fish just swim. Neither protest their environment, right? You'll never see a tree protesting outside a forest. No more squirrels, no more squirrels. You don't see that. Same with fish. You don't see fish protests at the dam, right? Let us swim, let us, you don't. We are like a tree and the fish in this way. We have grown up in a world with certain assumptions, certain foundations that keep us from building our lives on the rock. And here's the scary thing. Most of the time, we're not even aware of them. We're not even aware of them. We're going to hit three today. There are literally dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens that you and I have to uncover over the course of our lives, okay? I'm choosing three very broad ones because it's the water we swim in. It's the air we breathe as disciples. And we're going to hit three to deal with them. I say three, but I've snuck in a couple more there, so I can't help myself. Here's the assumption one, the foundation one, that we as uh, people of modernity or post-modernity or, or even post-post-modernity at this point have, that we're not even aware of. The first one is this, is that we have an anti-supernatural bias built into how we live our, life, our lives. Prior to the Enlightenment, the whole world had a supernatural bias. We are children of the Enlightenment, the West, so we don't. We think we're more evolved, right? 
Joshua Chatra has a good analogy for it. It can be best described like a house, is what he says. In the old world, everyone lived in a two-story house. They lived on the bottom floor in the natural world, and the supernatural world, the second story, was literally connected to the house. Not only that, but what happened on the second story of the house had direct effects on the first story. So let's take a simple example of farming. We're a farming community, right? To have a successful crop in the old world, and even the pagan world, they would make sacrifices to the second story, the supernatural world, and ask for blessing. And if the crop was bad one year, they assumed they did something wrong to tick off the gods. And so they would try to make amends. Nowadays, you and I, if you're a farmer, we only look for natural solutions, first story solutions. Many farmers don't pray because we assume the second story doesn't actually exist. We look for the right chemical, the right fertilizer to boost production. Now, as Christians, should we never look for natural solutions? Of course not. That'd be silly, right? God has gifted us tools to help our farming flourish. But also, as Christians, should we believe that God has no say of the rain? Of course not. We have tons of instances in the Bible where Yahweh God, that's our God, controls the weather for his purposes. But many of us, we live functionally like there's no second story to the house. Every time there's a problem, we assume it, it must have a natural cause and a natural solution. And in that way, many of us are functional atheists. And when you function like an atheist, you build your house on the sand. And when the rain comes and there's no natural solution, no first story solution, you throw up your hands and cry like a six-year-old on the beach because you've planted yourself in the wrong location. The supernatural world is very real. We will not see revival in this community. We will not see heart change in this community until we begin to engage more with the God who has all authority on heaven and earth, the second story and the first. We must pray for blessing from the second story. Bible teaches us just that. From earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Assumption two that we live in, assumption two that we live in, is that our identity is rooted in Darwinism. Our identity is rooted in Darwinism. We've had several generations now that think we are nothing more than a cosmic accident. That's what's taught in school, that's what's taught in the media. Even further, Darwinism is also rooted in a power grab. I'll get to that in a second. Let me define Darwinism for those of you that are like, I've never heard of Darwinism in my life. Darwinism is this basic idea that how you got here is from the goo through the zoo to you, right? I like how Frank Turk defines that. That it really is just the survival of the fittest. Understand this, though right? Darwinism is not only about the survival of the fittest. Unfortunately, I think we limit our definition there. But the flourishing of those in power 
at the expense of those that are not. That's what Darwinism is kind of rooted in. Further, not only do individuals see themselves through the lens of Darwinism, social Darwinism is a real thing that is taught. We see everything as a power grab. Turn on the news for 30 minutes and they will talk about power between different social groups ad nauseum, right? Everything is a power grab because it's all seen through the lens of Darwinism. This has caused two large problems with this assumption, and, and let me talk about these two problems. Problem one, lack of self-worth. We have a lack of self-worth. Um, we have more self-help books, self-help books, more identity seminars available, and more self-worth conferences to attend than ever before in the history of mankind. In the history of mankind. Tom. How many self-help seminars did you go to when you were 18? Yeah, yeah, he didn't care, right? <laughs> because the, 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 we've just seen that grow, right? We have more than ever before. We also have the greatest amount of depression, mental health issues, drug addiction, suicide rates than ever before. So we have the most first story solutions and we have the most first story problems. So where's the disconnect? We have all the resources in the world to deal with this. But none of them seem to be working. Some of it is definitely related to assumption one. We think the only solutions are natural, that a second story doesn't even exist. Others, on the opposite end of the spectrum, very much believe in a second story, but that second story actually wants to kill them from a Christian worldview. New Age movement, record numbers of those that adhere to it. Spirituality, whatever that means to the individual, record number of people that would mark that on a list of uh, some sort of profile. N the number of converts to Wiccanism, literally witchcraft, over the course of the past decade has been astounding. The use of hallucinogens to give people an otherworldly experience at an all-time high. Again, let's kick the first assumption out. New Age occultic spiritual type pres like practices, these are not false things in the sense of they're not real. They're very real. There are other spiritual forces in play that actually desire the destruction of your soul. That's why the Lord says don't mess with it. Not because it's not real, but because it is literally it can affect you and does torment countless people in the world. That, there's a reason why the Catholic Church for the last five, six, seven years has had an increase on requests for exorcisms every year. Because we continue to see a rise in the things that actually need exorcisms. Don't involve yourself in these practices. They believe in a second story. They're just second story wants to kill them. All these things are rooted in the belief that their self-worth, and this is such, if you read any of the New Age religion paraphernalia, which there's so much of you can't really, there's, you can't put a finger on it. You can't even put a hand on it. When you read that stuff, when you read Wiccan practices, if, if, you're, not, if you're not familiar with um, Wiccan practices, that's the idea of witches and warlocks, they get to build their own Bible, so it's the same thing too. So they just get to build different, whatever poetry or whatever 
resources they think should be their own spiritual. So even those practices are all focused on self, okay? There's not a, like, which Bible that you can pick up at Barnes. Well, there probably is. But, like, you get to incorporate that into your own religion, right? So this is true. All those things, even the anti-supernatural belief and the ones that cling to supernatural belief, all those things are rooted in the belief that their self-worth will be found within and not without. All those things are tied to that belief. Because they have been told that from without, they're simply cosmic accidents, nothing more than stardust, that their purpose in life, they have to make for themselves instead of discover it from the creator of the universe. Christianity screams a different and better story to the world. It's a far better message. The creator of the world has assigned to humankind a higher function to serve as divine image bearers, ruling over the earth, and flourish with life and creativity. That's what the Christian worldview gives you. Not as a power grab, but as a servant grab. We don't live for self, we die for self. Because others, even the ones we don't like, have immense worth in the eyes of a holy God. It's not the only problem that arises when our identities are tied to Darwinism, though. Problem two is this. Everything is seen as a power grab. Everything is seen as a power grab in our culture and in the West. And in some ways, they're right. I'm not denying that. Power is a huge motivator for a multitude of sins. However, this is the key thing. If you've ever studied Darwinism. However, under Darwinism, there is nothing intrinsically wrong with amassing power. Why? Because the fit should rule. The fit deserve to rule. The fit are the only ones under Darwinism that have the right to rule. There is nothing wrong with abusing the poor or the weak or the unfit within Darwinism because none of it actually matters in the end. That's why when you read Origin of Species by Charles Darwin, the subtitle, which everyone greatly leaves off, right? The preservation of the favored races in the struggle for life. Darwin believed that white people should lead because white people are better than everyone else. And it would be good for them to do so. So understand that. In Darwinism, we should take power. There's nothing wrong with it, especially if we're better than everyone else. The Christian story is far different, is it not? We have a Savior who laid down his power takes on the form of a servant, even dying for his enemies so that they may have life, so that they may build their house on the rock. While death is the great equalizer to the world that is obsessed with power, for the Christian, we lay up our treasures in heaven. Death has no power over us. This allows us to give up power for the benefit of our neighbor, to point to the king who actually has all the power, to set up our house on the rock. It's a very different story that we have as the church to carry. Assumption three, and this is all over our culture, and that is the diminishing the value of sex. If indeed we are just cosmic accidents, if indeed it's truly about amassing power, then there is absolutely nothing wrong with being focused on achieving some sort of sexual body count. 
If sex is nothing more than pleasure in a moment, under the belief that the moment is all that there is, then sex becomes cheap. The outcomes of sex become cheap. The assumption, this assumption, has wrecked absolute havoc in our world. I want you to think about, just for a minute, the number of sins, the number of evils that would disappear if mankind adopted a biblical view of sex. There would be no more rape. Statistically, there's a good portion of you that have experienced that in here. There would be no more rape if people adopted a biblical view of sex. No more sexual assault. Abortion rates would be absolutely decimated. STDs would begin to disappear. Sexual human trafficking, gone. Child sexual human trafficking, gone. Porn industry, which fuels everything I just mentioned, like gasoline on a fire, would begin to dissolve. But when your identity is rooted in Darwinism, we have sex because, well, that's what monkeys do. Child of God, the gift of sex given to you by your heavenly Father is worth so much more than that. Sex rooted in love, not lust, brings two people together, models selflessness, trust, and connection. And ironically, the Lord tells us in Ephesians 5, it models a relationship between Christ and his church. When done properly. One of the assumptions that I don't have time to discuss in full, because I really do think it would take a whole sermon, but it's related to this, is the assumption that erotic love Eros love, as it's described in scripture, sexual love, is the pinnacle of love. That wasn't even true in the pagan world. In the pagan world, that wasn't even true. But it's assumed today. Up until about the sexual revolution, the highest form of love was not erotic love, but was friendship love. The greatest love between two people is phileo love biblically. What does that mean? As the scriptures describe it, phileo is love derived from friendship, not eros love, which is derived from erotic love. Because we have assumed the latter, that sexual love is greater than friendship love, we have built whole relationships on the wrong foundation. I can't tell you how many marriages I know that are based on a desire for the body and not based on the desire for the person. Notice the difference there. Two very different things, the latter being of much greater value. When relationships are built on a foundation of sand, a foundation of sand, not tied to any rock, that will lead to destruction when storms attack that relationship. And if there's other people involved, and there's always other people involved, it destroys part of their lives too. Matthew 7, 24, 27. Let's see it again. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat on the house. But it did not fall because it, was, it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. There are two houses here. Just like the last couple weeks, there have been two ways, two gates. But under, hear me, we have the better story. We have the better story. Hearing and doing, if you notice from the verse before, we touched on that last week too. This is the last section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's wrapped up all that was said before. And what is the Sermon on the Mount? Again, the repeat over and over again is this call to the kingdom of heaven. You and I are called to repent and believe the gospel. Not because we have a tyrant king, but because we have a king who is sacrificed for us and calls us to a better story. Unlike, believe it or not, my 12-year-old self, I greatly mourn now when I see people build their castles on the wrong foundation. And before the tide turns, it always seems to be working. This passage, this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount offers a better foundation, a better story. This is the story that the world presents to us. Hear the story the world presents to us. Your cosmic accident. You have no inherent purpose in the world, so therefore you must create your own. There is only this moment, so you better live for it. The relationships you create should benefit you alone. Why? Because you can't really trust anyone but yourself. And in the end, there is an end. That's the story of the world. No wonder suicide, depression, mental anguish rates are through the roof. Can I tell you a better story? Story of the cross, story of Christianity, story as Christ calls it over and over again, the kingdom. You are an image bearer of the creator of the universe. <laughs> you not only have purpose on a human scale for all humanity, this is crazy thought, but the Lord has intentionally placed you at this moment in history, for this exact time, for such a place as this. I know many times, especially as parents, we go, what, we're what type of world are we leaving for our children? And I'm thinking, well, I'll just train them to be a knight. There's some dragons to be slayed. The Lord put me here intentionally for an exact purpose. The Lord gave me four children for an exact purpose. And the Lord gave you grandkids and kids and people to walk alongside for this exact season in the history of humanity, in history, in his story. Each moment has eternal value. Each moment has eternal value. Not only for you, but for those around you and for those who come after you. The relationships you create when founded on the rock model sacrificial hope to a world that is looking for it. 
you can always trust God in any circumstance, even when you feel alone. And in the end, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, for those of you that get to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, there will be no more tears. And life and joy and peace eternally. The gospel of Jesus really is good news. So good, it almost sounds too good to be true. But it is true. Many of us have forgotten that. We need to tell it more. For it is better story than the world has to offer. Jesus Christ really died to save sinners. All we need to do is repent of that sin and build our house upon the rock. Here's some applications I want to leave you with. First one, first application, start sweeping. Start sweeping. Imagine, if you would, a young person charged with sweeping the living space in the home. I know we got vacuums nowadays, so let's put this young person in the 17th century, okay? There's a lot of dirt on the floor in the 17th century. If you've not visited Sodder Village, there always has been, by the way. So they start sweeping, you can imagine, and there's more dirt. And so they keep moving the dirt out the front door until they've swept their whole living area and they've removed an inch from the floor. And then they think to themselves, what if there's no rock that this house is built on? But if I keep sweeping, all I'm going to find is sand. Very scary. We need, as Christians, to actually examine the foundations that we've built our life on. That we're called to do that. Many of us assume our houses are built on rock. Many of us don't take the time to attest our assumptions of reality because it's just the reality we've always lived in. We assume we are correct in most categories, and every belief we have Many of us believe that it's also God's belief. All of us have underlying ideas that need to be examined. So we start sweeping and seeing if there is rock under the dirt of the house or if it's just sand. Understand, this is the purpose of discipleship. This is literally the purpose of discipleship. All of us have built or believe certain things that are more built on the kingdom of darkness than the kingdom of light. And what we need to do is uncover those assumptions so that we can change our lives in such a way to reflect the king. Discipleship groups, triads, quads, they provide us with an opportunity to do some sweeping, to examine the text of scripture and apply it to our lives and see which areas need to be cleaned up or maybe even removed. You could do it on your own, but God gifted you the church to help us move ideas we have about reality from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. God gifts us a body for this purpose. None of us are finished products. None of us. We're always reforming, always sweeping, and with the Holy Spirit's help, we can flourish on the rock. Second thing, get rid of the vacation home. 
Some of us have built our house on the rock on Sunday. But we got this vacation home that's built on the sand. We have that areas of our lives that we've just not given up to God, and we don't really want to because we like it. Whether it's a drinking closet, a vacation home filled with pornography, treating your coworkers like dirt during the week, and then praising God with the same lips on Sunday. Another American assumption that we have, it's, it's a very Western one, is that our faith is only personal, and therefore it has no implications on the way that we live the rest of our lives. Sweep that out. That is nowhere in the text of Scripture. Our relationship with Jesus will affect all areas of our lives. We just have to be willing to get rid of the vacation home on the sand. I promise you, if you are found there during a time of crisis, it'll sweep you away. Don't be found there. Last, build on the rock. Build on the rock. We seem to miss this part of the passage real quickly. At least I did this week. It was one of those things I'm reading at the last time, and I went, oh, that'll close the sermon. How did I miss this? I don't want us to. We're called to build our house on the rock. You and I, with the help of God, Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we actually build it. We create structures and habits and insulation and design a home on the rock. What intentional things, church, what intentional things are you involved in to better build your house? What intentional things are you involved in to better build your house? Are you showing your children how to build theirs? Are you providing a safe and loving home for a spouse, a place of shalom? Is there enough space for other people's issues inside your home? Or is it so well insulated, you're of no benefit to the community? What intentional things are you involved in in building a better house? Intentionality is key, right? He's not here today, so he doesn't get to turn red in the face, right? But Caleb just built a house, right? If you've not seen a house, it's a beautiful house. You were involved somewhat, right? Can I ask you a question? Did Caleb just go to Menards, buy wood and nails, and then show up on the property and start hammering away? He's, he's, he's saying no. <laughs> Did he just get some Instaconcrete mix and then, like, start dumping and flat. No, no, seriously. Wow. Did he, like, I like a bathroom here, and just add one as he, no, no. He was intentional in building the whole house. And from anyone who's in, lives in a home, you know that that never stops, right? <laughs> I got to remodel this, I got to fix this, I got to deal with this, right? Because some of our rooms are built on sinking sand, it feels like. In Texas, it was literal. You, you either had a house that had foundation issues or you would have a house that had foundations issues. But we have to intentionally build our lives in such a way. We can't do it. It'll just happen. It'll just happen. That's not how the Christian life works. Unless you want to live in a very bedangled, <laughs> leaky house on the rock. 
You see, when your foundation is good, when your foundation is good, you can dream. You can build a beautiful house. Sweep. Check your foundation. Get rid of that vacation home. Reinvest the proceeds in your home on the rock. And start building for the glory of God something better. Bow your heads with me.